0: A store, containing spirits, I directed to be burnt. The inhabitants had previously abandoned the town, and removed most of their effects. But, I am sorry to observe, several of the marines and soldiers so far forgot themselves, as in spite of every exertion of the officers, to get beastly drunk. Twelve of them were, in consequence, lost in the wood left behind. Captain Robert Berry. Royal Navy. Huzzah! The few seamen I have under my command is a source of serious inconvenience and uneasiness. They are scarcely any seamen among them. And those we had here are the most indifferent men of their rates I have ever seen. They are really not good and are exhausted in constitution from their winter dissipation on shore. I am told they were many weeks drunk at a time and never on board their ships until forced there by this disability. Captain Arthur Sinclair, U.S. Navy. Huzzah! When he saw that the enemy was at the mouth of the river, in consequence of which he told me the men should be sent on board, and which was done in a manner to require censure. Forty men came on board the evening of the 13th, all drunk, and caused the greatest confusion. Yesterday, 28 more were sent in the same situation so that I was under the necessity of putting the most of them in irons, all of which has a fatal tendency. Acting Master Commandant, Joshua Barney. Huzzah! Yes, today we will be sharing stories of spiritous liquors and the Army's whiskey and rum rations. So grab your gill measure and join me by pouring liberally to the foaming brim of your favorite grog, your rum, whiskey, wine, claret, pork, brandy, Wittucopi, spirits, spruce, rye, Madeira, punch, and old John Barleycorn. Our Bacchic votaries are just beginning. For I'll trim the young dogs, for thus daring to twine the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's vine. To quote the second stanza to a song that should be important to many Americans and the War of 1812. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids. My name is John. Drink deep and linger long. Quarters, Camp Megs, April 22, 1813, General Orders, the Guards, in future, when relieved, be conducted to the outside of the camp and under the direction of the Officer of the Day, will discharge the loads in their guns at a mark. The best shot will receive a quart of whiskey THE SECOND BEST, A PINT, UPON THE ORDER OF THE OFFICER OF THE DAY. Here, we can acquaint ourselves with the idea that whiskey was used as a reward, an incentive for good marksmanship, at least. Alcohol being one of the few coveted items the Army could spare and provide. It takes on almost the position of a currency, and later we'll see examples of it being gambled over. A quart of whiskey is a healthy amount of juice. The amount of alcohol and the types consumed might be a tad unique in the War of 1812. This determined by a number of factors and the economic conditions of North America and the time. Beer was not so common in the frontier areas as one might expect, at least not in the quantities sufficient to supply an army. In Upper Canada and the Old Northwest, these inland provinces were still a bit young and therefore, while beer was brewed at a local farm level, large commercial brewing operations were not yet available and were found only in the larger urban centers further to the east. Also, the number and qualities of roads did not allow for the mass transportation of so many hundreds or thousands of barrels that would be needed to supply a camp or barracks. Something more potent, with more bang for the buck, so to speak, would be more practical. And, indeed, troops were supplied with whiskey or rum as part of their daily issuance of rations. In the 18th century, the British army toyed with the idea of supplying their Canadian troops with spruce beer as the ingredients were more readily available and therefore cheaper to produce. Molasses, yeast, and spruce tips, if you're curious. Actually sounds very interesting, and any brewers in the audience should feel welcome to send me a case for sample and free promotion. Spruce beer was part of the intake of the American Continental Army during the Revolution before giving way to whiskey in the 1790s during the Northwest Indian Wars, where it remained through the War of 1812, being removed from a soldier's regular diet in 1832, in the face of the temperance movement, and here is where coffee makes its first sobering appearance on the ration list. But rum, of course, was the oil that fueled the Empire. Run up from the Caribbean aboard His Majesty's ships, it was deposited in Quebec, where the Department of the Commissariat not only allocated stocks to the army, but also for the use by the Indian Department as a trade and gift item, and also to the Canadian Provincial Marine, the Inland Navy or Coast Guard force that protected Lady Canada's shores, and worked the supply vessels that plied the lakes and rivers. From 1807 through 1812, as tensions ever increased, between the U.S. and Britain, more rum was ordered and stored as a precautionary step towards war. Rye whiskey was abundant and the preferred spirit of the rural civilian population in Upper Canada, where healthy crops had, for years, produced copious amounts that were consumed by the thirsty American loyalists bedding down there in the years following the Revolution. Prior to the war, issuance of any spiritus liquor to soldiers was often reserved for those pressed to labor in wet and inclement weather, which is quite common in Canada, so we can suppose quite liberally applied. But bad crop years in 1811 and 1812 would restrict its availability as war gripped North America at the dawn of the conflict. And at these lean times, the British frontier posts in the Lake region often had to rely more and more on the locally produced rye whiskey, though the quality of this homespun was said to be of questionable character. During the war years, we see a bit of an on-again, off-again relationship with the daily ration of rum. The slow winter months often saw it greatly curtailed or forbidden entirely, but those on campaign or in the front-line positions often were supplied for fortitude. At this time, the British on the other side of the river were engaged with the enemy at Lundy's Lane. We could hear the report of their great guns. Our captain informed us that he had received orders to cross the river to assist them. We crossed and latter at Queenstown. We moved from this place in quick time for about seven miles and waited for orders near Lundy's Lane. A noggin, a rum, was given to each man. We then moved on for the field of action. Shadrach Byfield, Lundy's Lane. Lundy's Lane coming in summer 1814, when Britain could allocate more resources to its North American war effort, and rum returned to the daily ration list. It rose from a half-gill in autumn 1813 to a full-gill in 1814. Shadrick Byfield mentions a noggin of rum being issued prior to going into battle, noggin being a term for a small cup or glass. But as we've heard, a gill measure is also used widely in both armies to indicate the four ounce or half cup of spirits that went into a soldier's stomach each day. Gill is a much older word than noggin, so as a fan of the English language, I find it interesting that this term appears so widely in American usage, where noggin is a touch less prolific, In 21st-century use, neither term seems recognized in any measure. About the middle of the siege, Captain Wood, the engineer, ordered me to take a fatigue party of the Ohio Militia and throw up a short entrenchment near the rear line and in front of my blockhouse. I commenced according to order. The ground was very much exposed, being nearly in range of the magazine, at which the enemy were throwing red hot balls to blow it up. These balls passed between the men and hissed and boiled in the bank. The men would leave their work and declare they could not stand it. I informed Captain Wood that the men could not be kept at work. He then gave me an unlimited order on the commissary for whiskey and directed me to give it to them every half hour and to make them drink it until they were insensible to fear, but not too drunk to stand and work. He said, there is no other way it must be done in extreme cases. And so I did it. The men then kept at their work, reeling and cursing the British in their hot balls until the work was finished. There were none killed or badly wounded. Alexander Bourne, Ohio. In this Alexander Bourne story, we see the American Army dispensing whiskey as a fortifying agent in particularly stressful battlefield situations, much like their British counterparts. Just before night, the Adjutant General informed that I was appointed Adjutant of the day for the next 24 hours. Major Alexander of the Volunteers, field officer of the day, and requested me to inform him of it. I found him in the marquee of Colonel Miller drinking brandy. He said he was unfit for duty, and I ought to have told him sooner. I told him I had just been informed of it myself, and as it was nearly dark, nobody would perceive his inebriety and that I would attend to his duties as far as it was possible. And taking him by the arm, we went to his marquee and sat down, he lamenting his situation, and I cheering him. We must go to headquarters immediately for special orders, I said, but he was afraid his situation would be discovered. Alexander Bourne, Ohio. dram shops could be found throughout both Canadian provinces, often wisely located close to garrisons. And Prior to the war, these were filled with soldiers at all times, dropping their beer money pennies on the barrel head. But once war began and the threat of invasion plagued Upper Canada, the sale of spiritus liquor by civilians to soldiers was limited only to those with special license. On campaign, spirits could be acquired from local sutlers who plied their trade selling extra goods to lonely soldiers for comfort. And here at Fort Meggs, a conference of officers generated a set price list for the sutlers to adhere to in the spring of 1813. Like the British command, whiskey was listed as only sold by permission at $1.25 and brandy, spirits, and rum at a whopping $4.50. Officer prices for sure. Adjutant John O'Fallon did not include the amounts for a buck and a quarter when he wrote the order. Like its food rations, the Army procured its ration whiskey through a system of private contractors. And these individuals and companies were notorious for shoddy supplies of all kinds, as the contracts were often awarded to the lowest bid. Orderly Sergeant Nathan Newsom gives us an idea of the quality of American whiskey, at least in one instance from December 1812. It snowed more or less every day. The cold was so penetrating that the whiskey, which was drawn by the soldiers from the commissary and not immediately drank but preserved during the night in canteens, froze hard and could not be used the next day without the aid of fire. No thermometer is in the army by which we can ascertain the degrees of coldness in this climate. However, we will leave it to the reader to decide what causes this whiskey to freeze. If it is the intense coldness of the climate or whether the commissaries are committing fraud in issuing whiskey to the soldiers of an inferior quality and almost destitute of spirits as we believe that fraud is intended by the commissary against the soldiers and has been ever since the army is gathered together, and as we are not certain whether the officers are conniving at this time or not, we shall delay this subject for a future day. The rations are seldom drawn in full. Whiskey, candles, or some part is wanting almost every day. How these things are accounted for, time will develop. And we shall, in conclusion of this work, fully point out the defrauder, if anyone to be found, and hold him up to public excreation and contempt. Nathan Newsom, Ohio Militia. Dr. James Mann on campaign with the American army from 1812 to 1814, spoke openly and outright against the daily ration of alcohol immediately after the war. My opinion long has been that ardent spirits are an unnecessary part of a ration. This allowance is as as. As part of a ration, is not, however, the evil which demands a remedy. It is the abuse of spirits. Suttlers, unrestrained as they frequently are, destroy more lives by these liquors than are lost by other causes to which soldiers are exposed. And so long as ardent spirits are permitted to be publicly sold in the vicinity of a cantonment, well, these evils cannot be remedied by any restrictions under which settlers may be placed. A soldier, habitually intemperate, is always industrious to procure the means of indulging his appetite. All his cunning and every artifice are put into requisition to obtain the inebriating draught. Reputation, honor, health, and, and, and even even life are sacrificed to his gratification. While in addition to their daily rations, our soldiers, when they had money in their pockets, had free access to spirits at the stores of the sutler. Diseases and mortality generally, but not necessarily, always followed paymasters of the army. With means to make themselves comfortable, soldiers frequently render their lives just wretched. Doctor James Mann, American Army surgeon. While we touch briefly on doctors and by extension hospitals, it should be noted that Private Shadrick Byfield of the forty first Regiment of Foot we heard from before, he received mold wine following the amputation of his arm, and whether or not this was done under the eye of a medical officer, Byfield does not specify. The operation was tedious and painful, but I was enabled to bear it pretty well. I had it dressed and I went to bed. They brought me some mulled wine and I drank it. The stump of my arm soon healed. And three days after, I was able to play a game of fives for a quart of rum. Shadrick Byfield must have been a remarkable individual. have had the strength to play a game of fives within three days of the bloodletting that inevitably comes with a major operation, and this only to drink more alcohol if he were the winner. And though a quart of rum was the prize, the game of fives he is referring to is not the popular college drinking game, but an athletic handball game very much enjoyed in his home of County Wiltshire. England. here we camped without tents shelter or supper but we found wood and made large fires in some way i never knew how some of the men being wet cold and hungry were in a quest for something to eat when they found in a boat a keg of brandy, from which they drew large rations. Others got possession of the secret, and drew also, till the keg was emptied. When the officers sought for a little of the creature comfort, the keg proved to have leaked it all out. Of course, they suspected the soldiers, but they might as well have looked for a needle in a haymow as for the man or men who tapped the governor's stores. If they had visited the campfires nearby them, they could have found a number who were much the worse for liquor. But what liquor, or where it came from, would have been a difficult question to be answered, except by the men themselves. Sergeant Alfred Brunson, 27th U.S. Infantry. Just a little non-committal anecdote from Brunson to show some fun and the lustful gravity liquor enjoyed from the common man in his aches on campaign. And we close today with a few lines from Robert Burns. And like any poet, Robert Burns reflected the energy of his time. But perhaps here, it is the timeless quality that the escape and elevation alcohol endows that Burns speaks of. And therefore, we too can sing with the Scottish poet and the soldiers of 1812. <laughs> <laughs> Strong ale was ablution, small beer persecution. A dram was memento mori, But the full flowin bowl Was the save in his soul, And port was celestial glory. Gie him strong drink, until he wink, That's sinkin' in despair, In liquor good, to fire his blood, That's pressed with grief and care. There, let him booze, and deep careers with bumpers flowing o'er Till he forgets his loves, his dates, And minds his griefs no more.